Uh, I read a story recently about a young woman. Her name's Kayla. And Kayla decided that she wanted to volunteer. She wanted to be a, a short-term missionary, like a week-long missionary. And she wanted to work uh, at a summer camp uh, that was serving families uh, with children with disabilities. She was really excited about uh, this opportunity. She had looked into it for months and months and months. She got special training. She had asked people to pray for her. She had asked people to give to her so that she could go. And on the second day of camp, something devastating happened. Uh, a mother within one of those families claimed that Kayla had made some negative comments uh, about her parenting. And so this mother went to the camp directors, reported this. The camp directors investigated this allegation. They came to Kayla, and Kayla didn't have any recollection of saying anything of the sort. So lots of people were involved to try to figure something out, but there was no resolution. So as you can imagine, Kayla was distraught. People handled it as best they could, but there was just this cloud of negativity that hung over Kayla. And Kayla, in the weeks to come, she reflected back on this week at camp. She reflected on this innocent incident, and she thought, that originally that if she gave up her time, she gave up her money, that it would lead to encouragement in her own heart, was that she would uh, have gratitude and she'd have these warm fuzzies. And instead of having these warm fuzzies, she had given her money and she had given her time and it led to shame and slander and lots of drama. And so she had to face the fact that maybe she didn't want to volunteer out of a heart of love for these families and for God. Maybe she'd serve at this camp so that she could think well of herself and that other people could think well of her too. Maybe her good deeds were counterfeit. Has this kind of motivation ever been exposed in your heart? Kayla, she had learned this lesson that Jesus is trying to teach his disciples over and over and over again. And it's really simple. That their life was on the same trajectory as his. A trajectory towards death. And now Kayla is going to have to realize the darkness in her own heart in terms of her motivation when it comes to doing ministry. She's going to have to experience the same things that Jesus did in his last days. That he experienced, just like she did, shame and slander and lots of drama. And all throughout Jesus' ministry, the disciples just couldn't get their minds around the fact that Jesus is headed towards death. And they couldn't grapple with it for two different reasons, I think, at least two. One is that the disciples had other plans for Jesus. They wanted Jesus to overthrow the Romans, and they wanted Jesus, Jesus to set up a kingdom of power. And he seems like a great candidate for it, doesn't he? I mean, Jesus, all throughout his life, he's using his authority to cast out unclean spirits. He's using his authority to calm the winds and the wave. He's using his authority to heal lepers and the lame and the blind. And on top of all that, he teaches us one with authority that he's got this mad preaching game going for him. It's like he's on this journey and he's headed towards Jerusalem. That's what he says in Luke chapter 9. 
And the disciples, not just the 12, but all those who would follow Jesus, they think that this journey to Jerusalem is going to end in him taking over for Caesar and being the king who's in the line of David. But Jesus was really clear. He wasn't going to Jerusalem to be crowned king to rule over a political kingdom. He was being crowned king in his suffering, that he was going to Jerusalem to die. So they heard the Jerusalem part, but they didn't hear the dying part. And I think the other reason the disciples are so slow to catch on is that they know Jesus' life ends in death that theirs is going to as well. Following Jesus is going to cost them everything. He's going to have to take precedence over things like their family and their money. And even though Jesus has predicted his death, it just doesn't sink in. And then finally, we get to Luke chapter 19, the triumphal entry, the place where Jesus finally gets to Jerusalem. And he comes during Passover, the high point of the Jewish calendar. And it just seems like it's going to be perfect timing for a good old-fashioned Roman butt whooping. But that's, and that's why they're so excited when he comes to town. They think victory is coming, but it's actually defeat. So this text is crucial for me and for you today. 2021 Palm Sunday. Suffering all around over the last year, right? Is God punishing our country for leaving its moral foundation? Is God punishing the world for, with the pandemic? I don't know. But I do know that all of us who are in Christ, we're on this trajectory, this arc that begins with suffering, just like it did for Jesus. And if that's true, we shouldn't be surprised that suffering's coming down the pipe for us too. But we fight it off with everything we have, don't we? We try to put a positive spin on our sufferings. We try to look back at what we did to get us in this suffering spot so that we might learn lessons so we don't get into this spot again. We get into suffering and we like to blame those who have more power than us that we got where we are. But the scriptures are very plain. That pain is inevitable for us as Christians. And in fact, suffering and pain is good for us. And that's why we need to understand texts like Luke 19. Let's read it together, starting verse 28. And when he, Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. He drew near, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt, a donkey, tied there, and on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away, found it, the donkey, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, his owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. I thought it was hilarious that the owners didn't say anything back. Verse 35, and they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their, clo- their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, and as he was drawing near, 
already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can tell in this passage, Luke is very careful in how he crafts his portrayal of Jesus. He paints for us a picture of Jesus who's simultaneously a servant and a king. Look at how he's a king. You see he's a king because he knows all these details about this colt, this donkey. He knows where it is, its location. He knows that it's tied up. He knows that it's never been ridden. And he tells the two disciples to go procure it simply because the Lord has need of it. How does he know all that? Why does he do that? It's because he's king. Then look at how they throw cloaks on the donkey. Why would they throw cloaks on the donkey? Because it would be improper for an important person like Jesus to ride a donkey unsaddled. He's a king. And then Jesus literally gets the red carpet treatment. They don't throw a red carpet down, but they put cloaks down on the street for the donkey to trot on as Jesus enters the city on it. And a fourth thing, the most obvious, look at what the crowd shouts in verse 38. They shout, blessed is the king. It comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. King. But for all the hoopla, all the show, all these notes of Jesus being in power, we also see a couple places where Jesus is suppressing his raw power. One is the animal by which he rides into the city. He rides into the city on a donkey, a colt. But important people ride into cities on horses. Then you look at all the people who are around Jesus. You, we all know the riffraff that are around Jesus. They're not VIPs. They're fishermen and tax collectors and dubious women and street people and mentally ill folks. He's a servant. He's also a king. This is Jesus. And notice the part that the crowd picks up on. The crowd picks up on the fact that he is king. And they don't make any connection with him being a servant. No one asks questions about why is the king riding into town on a donkey? Why are all these people who are associated with the so-called king a bunch of riffraff? They're just not connecting the dots. They're forgetting about all the times that he's blown up their expectations of who he is. 
Why? Why don't they see it? Well, it's because if Jesus chooses humility, if he chooses suffering, if he chooses death on a cross, and then he calls, then he calls them to follow him, they're going to have to embrace humility. And they're going to have to give up their exaltation. They're going to have to choose suffering and not comfort. And they too are going to have to die. Have you ever thought about that being a part of your Christian life? What is suffering? And you know where the best place is to start. The best place is to start is that your praise is counterfeit. I know that hurts. I know it feels like death. I know it feels pretty offensive to be told that your praise is a charade. Because you can say, well, my praise feels genuine. I feel like I have a close walk with God. I come to church every Sunday and I sing these praises from my heart. Guess what? All these people in this passage could have said the same thing. They really are excited about Jesus. They're not faking it. So what's the alternative? How do we sing and not, and not be counterfeit? Well, the first thing to do is to keep singing. Jesus did say right here, if you don't sing, the rocks are going to sing. But you've got to realize that Jesus wants more than just your lip service. He wants you to sing songs, not out of a heart of victoriousness, but a heart of heart that's broken. See, those closest to Jesus should have recognized what was going on here. They should have recognized that Jesus is riding on a donkey. They should have remembered all the times that Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. They should have been crying at this moment, not praising. They should have been singing songs not of exaltation, but songs of lament. They should have squared their hearts with the impending suffering that was about to take place. So the question for me and you is, what's the condition of your heart? Is your heart broken? Have you refused to accept that the way of Jesus is the way of suffering? I think we refuse suffering all the time. We refuse suffering every single time we refuse to repent. We refuse suffering every time we shake our fists at God for not giving us what we want. We refuse suffering every time we don't extend forgiveness. We refuse suffering when we won't risk our reputation in order to share the gospel with a friend. We refuse suffering when we won't stand with the poor. See, all these avenues, repentance, forgiveness, accepting pain as from the hand of God, sharing the gospel, loving the poor, they all require one thing. Suffering. And all of them require the death of your ego. So what do we do? We just keep going along singing counterfeit praises. You know what shocks me about this passage is the scene that comes after the one with them singing praises to Jesus while he's riding a donkey. What shocks me is what we see in verses 41 to 44. We see Jesus' response to these counterfeit praises. 
Jesus doesn't chide them for their charade. Instead, he does three things in verse 41. Look, so look what he does. He draws near. He sees. And he weeps. He draws near. He sees. And he weeps. See, Jesus is getting closer and closer to death. He's nearing Jerusalem. And think about all the strategies he could have tried as he draws near to Jerusalem. He could have tried to talk his way out of going to Jerusalem. He could have turned and hightailed it out of there, but he doesn't. Instead, he draws near. He draws near to people who sing his counterfeit praises. Somehow, our counterfeit praises don't repulse Jesus. They call for him to draw near to us. He draws near, then he sees. He sees the city. Fascinating. If you knew that this group of people was going to reject you, how hard would it be to pause, to stop and look at those who are going to reject you? Now, sure, you could look to the outsides of the city, and instead of seeing it, you could have just put your head down. Sometimes it's hard to look up and see something that's painful. Instead, we just put our head down and we just grind our way through the task at hand. But not Jesus. He looks squarely at God's holy city. He looks at the city that's got a long, long history of disobedience. He's looking at the city that's been prepared for thousands of years by God to meet her Messiah, to meet her Savior, and to meet her Redeemer. And now they're about ready to reject him. And what does he do with people who reject him? He weeps. The word there in 41 for tears is very strong. It's more like full sobbing. Full wailing. And Jesus isn't weeping for himself. He could have. I'd feel pretty sorry for myself if I was Jesus. But he's weeping for the city. He weeps for the ones who are about to shout, crucify him. Doesn't that make you tremble? I mean, even in our complicity, even though we've belted out these counterfeit praises, Jesus weeps for us. This is the ultimate sign that he's not indifferent towards you. I hope this moves you. I hope when you, you feel alone and like no one loves you, you know that Jesus does, that he weeps for you, that is... Tears for you are like that of a parent who watches their child do something that's really irresponsible. A few years back, uh, I was friends with a young man who's, I don't know, seven or eight years younger than me. And I got to know him. Uh, he started coming to the church. He'd sit in the back about where John is. and He's real quiet. And uh, I, I'd see him Sunday after this is a taste break. Sunday after summer, Sunday, I'd see him sit back there and he'd jet it out of there. So I thought, man, I'm going to be really quick off the ball. So they give the Roberts, whoever it was, gave, gives a benediction. I'm going to make a beeline out there for him. A meeting, his name's Pete. And I offered to take him to lunch that week and we go to lunch. And uh, we show up and he drops something on me I wasn't expecting. He said, My name's Pete and I just need you to know that I'm a drug addict. I thought, well, usually when I find out someone's a drug addict, they don't tell me. 
especially that first conversation, but he did. He was really, really honest about his addiction. And he was only honest with two people, me and his dad. So when we would get together for lunch or early morning coffee, he would kind of give me the up-to-date version of where he's at and trying to kick his addiction. And he'd always have stories about talking with his dad. I just couldn't believe it. I didn't know his dad at all. I never met him. And finally, I did meet him. I met him at his house. I met him at his house after Pete overdosed. I wasn't there very long. There were a lot of people around, and I just asked if I could just put my hand on him and pray for him. So I did. Next time I saw him was at the funeral, and I just put my hand on him and prayed for him. That was it. That's all I knew. That's all I had with his dad. So I had these stories that Peter told me. I had these two short interactions with him. And about a year after his death, Pete's dad reached out to me. He said, hey, I, I, my wife and I, we'd love to take you to lunch and talk about our son. Right, I'm in. So we went, it was this really warm meeting, and they shared with me stories that filled in a lot of gaps that I didn't have about Pete's life. But the part of this, the part of our time together that I remember the most is how they told me how they related to Pete during his addiction. They said in the early days of his addiction, they just they chided him over and over and over again. Always yelling at him. It didn't make sense. You wouldn't want your son, your daughter on drugs. So they didn't want Pete on drugs. They said that over time, they were able to see that Pete wanted to give it up so bad and just couldn't. He couldn't knock it. Not, he couldn't knock his habit. And they began to change. They began to say, we're here for you no matter what. We're going to leave the light on for you. We're not going to help. We're not going to enable your addiction. But we're never going to shut the door on you. And they said from that point on, Pete was brutally honest with him about his day-to-day struggle. And he, they said it was so difficult that it was easier to be really hard on him than it was to listen to the pain of his day-to-day addiction. And in the end, his addiction destroyed him. I think when you put yourself in the parent's shoes and you're looking at Pete's life, I think it's a similar position of God looking at us. You might say, well, I'm not an addict. But the truth of our sinful hearts is that we're all addicts and we're addicts to ourselves. We love us some us. And Jesus sits with you in your addiction to self and he weeps for you. He weeps for you as you self-destruct. And he's hoping that you see him weeping for you. And that you realize that you've been trying to use him. See, they said that was the hard part. So sometimes people would turn these sob stories into trying to get some money out of them to use for drugs. I think we just want to use Jesus. We just want to use him to accomplish our desired end. This is true in the text, right? I mean, they just wanted Jesus to overthrow Rome. They just wanted political freedom. They didn't really mean the words that they sang. They just wanted their life to be easier. 
But the good news of the gospel is that our desire to use Jesus does not keep Jesus from loving us. He pushes right through our dark hearts to rescue us from the domain of death. And he gives us a greater peace, a greater peace than is found in any sort of political freedom. And he gives it to us in the depths of our souls. And it's a peace that comes with the forgiveness of sin, peace with God. And the crowd makes a frightful choice. It's got dire consequences. You see it in 42 through 44. They missed their opportunity. They didn't see Jesus as servant king. And see, if you don't see the meaning behind Jesus' tears, if you don't see the peace that he offers, if you're not able to square your soul with the reality of your counterfeit praise, then it's going to get really ugly for you. That's what verses 42 through 44 are all about. What Jesus is doing is that he's predicting the destruction of Jerusalem. Just a few decades later, the whole city is going to be in shambles, including the Jews' beloved temple. That's a picture of what your life will be. So you've got a choice. I've got a choice today. We can choose Jesus and suffer as a servant. And if we do, we'll have a peace that abides forever. Or we can reject Jesus. And we can endure a different kind of suffering, the suffering of judgment. And we'll never have peace. So suffering's going to come one way or the other. Are you going to choose Jesus and suffer as a servant? Or are you going to choose, reject Jesus and suffer as judgment? It's going to come one way or the other. Which will you choose? See, this whole thing starts with being honest. It all starts with being honest that you love all the things associated with Jesus more than Jesus. That's the crowd's problem. They love the thing that Jesus offered, political freedom, more than Jesus himself. And maybe for you, you love your politics more than Jesus. You just pray to Jesus to make your politics go the way you want. Maybe you love the community that Jesus gives you more than Jesus himself. Maybe the idea of family or the reality of family, a spouse and children, maybe you love that more than Jesus. I don't know. All these things, they're just gifts. And they all proceed from a person of Jesus, but we misprioritize them oh so easily. But they can't be realigned. And they're realigned through repentance. And repentance hurts. And that's the suffering the cross offers. The kingdom of Jesus is about crosses and donkeys and tears. Oh, Jesus, we want to follow you in this way of humility as we journey to the cross. Amen.